Hello, and welcome to the Natural Evolution Podcast, produced by Rebel Health Tribe. I'm Michael, and I'll be your host. Together, we will be hearing inspiring stories of healing and transformation, learning from some of the brightest minds in the world of functional medicine and holistic wellness, and exploring the world's best health-related products, services, tools, and resources. recording. Hello, we are here today with Dr. Jessica Drummond. Dr. Drummond, thank you. It's weird to call you that because I've (laughs) known you for a while, but uh, thank you for being here. This will be fun. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Uh, for those who don't know, Dr. Jessica Drummond is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and author of Outsmart Endometriosis. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. She's got 20 years experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, facilitates educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally, and leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. She lives and works with her husband and daughters between Houston, Texas, and Fairfield, Connecticut, and it sounds like Vermont and maybe Italy. Yes, anywhere we are. The (laughs) pandemic threw it all in the air. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell this was before then. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and uh, before we came on, both of us are uh, working on some sort of form of relocation to Italy, potentially, so we've been chatting about that quite a bit the last... uh, year or two. So maybe we'll do something live from uh, Amalfi Coast at some point in the future or Chilento where you're looking. Yeah, even better. Great. Tuscany, wherever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's all fine. So um, today uh, we are going to be uh, talking a lot about, you know, your specialty, women's health, pelvic pain, endometriosis, and we'll just jump right in. <laughs> so I'm curious how you started as a PT uh, mm-hmm. and was that, was working with women in chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis, those type of things, did that just kind of fall in your lap or did you seek that out or how did that come about in your career trajectory? Well, I started in orthopedics. I was an athlete as a kid and, uh, you know, was most interested in that when I first got out of graduate school. And then I started working just by happenstance with, uh, I worked in an outpatient orthopedic clinic and I started working with some breast cancer patients who had shoulder issues after their cancer surgeries. And I started working with pregnant women with back pain. So women's pelvic health uh, and women's health in general uh, in physical therapy terms is essentially a subspecialty of orthopedics that focuses on pelvic health and the pelvic floor and the integration of the pelvic floor with um, the spine and the nervous system and how that interacts with the hip and the abdomen and the back and everything. And so, and, you know, in cancer, you can have, that can be anywhere from ovarian cancer to breast cancer. And I worked um, and that's where I first started kind of got my interest in working with women's health specifically. And then I worked in a women's uh, specialty hospital for many years. So I did, you know, even working with women in high-risk pregnancy or delivering babies and having more spine pain than, than birth pain. So kind of going into labor and delivery, doing manual therapy and 
that the most sort of complex issue that we dealt with in that subspecialty was chronic pelvic pain. And at the time, so this was now, gosh, in the very early 2000s, there weren't many choices for pain management other than physical therapy. And they would do like, they would implant stimulators. The surgeries weren't very good. Many of my patients were given opioids and were addicted to opioids. And so, you know, between pelvic pain, which is uh, everything from muscle pain of the pelvis to endometriosis, to bladder issues, to vulva vaginal issues, there weren't many solutions. So the gynecologists were just like, well, go see the PTs and see if they can do anything. And we, we very often could because um, pelvic pain, especially vulvodynia and the sequela of endometriosis oftentimes has to do with pelvic floor dysfunction, which is a musculoskeletal issue, a muscle joint nerve issue of the pelvis. But we kept, there were some patients where we, that would plateau. So that's where I then started to learn more about nutrition for some of my own postpartum healing, actually, um, when my oldest daughter was born back in 2003. And I had no idea at the time that nutrition could impact hormone health or even like endurance recovery. Um, and so what I learned from my own healing postpartum, I was able to then start bringing and integrating with dealing with just the musculoskeletal issues to start thinking about hormones, which was common because endometriosis kinds of pain is often cyclical with the menstrual cycle, for example, or microbiome was related to vulvovaginal health. So that's how over the last 20, 25 years, I became more and more specialized in working in women's health. Quite the road. And it seems like it just kind of happened organically. You saw a need and decided to try to fit it in there. And yeah. it's another from the conventional training side who didn't learn about nutrition and about you know, a lot of things that play a huge role in and increase out, like improve outcomes, doing the same type of thing that you're trained to do. Um, I've noticed that kind of differentiates the really good PTs and people who work with chronic pain and things are the ones who have kind of stepped over uh, the threshold into more of an integrative functional medicine, like nutrition and lifestyle and, you know, stress. And how does that affect uh, one's response to these treatments, to these therapies? I'm sure there's a pretty clear uh, cut and dry difference and improvement if you you know, get a patient's lifestyle and diet honed in versus if you don't. For sure. And I think that, you know, especially with endometriosis and especially now versus then now there's so much more information, you know, and, you know, we didn't literally didn't even have, like, I didn't have a cell phone when my oldest daughter yeah. was born. So like, we didn't have all the yeah. like social media conversation, but now the challenge. The younger listeners see, out there, that really was a thing. <laughs> So, and you mentioned endometriosis for those, uh, for people who have endometriosis, they're very familiar with it. Uh, for those who don't, or don't have anybody in their life who does, can you just give a brief, um, overview of what is endometriosis? And I guess that yeah. would just be the starting point. Yeah. And, you know, you may, sometimes people have endometriosis, but don't get 
very well diagnosed. We still have, it was about 15 years to diagnosis when I first started working in this field and still about six to 12 years. So endometriosis generally looks like someone around eight to 12 to 14, starting their menstrual cycle, having a lot of pelvic period pain, menstrual cramps that are pretty significant, or they can be, this pain can happen acyclically initially too, because the cycle itself is not established. So sometimes the pain seems to come out of nowhere and often it's mistaken for digestive symptoms. So a lot of bloating, a lot of digestive discomfort, a lot of gut issues. So if you have a girl in her tweens or early teens, who's been kind of to all the different GI doctors and everything looks normal. It's a huge index of suspicion for me for endometriosis. It's also a genetic issue with autoimmune and uh, inflammatory components. So what we're seeing now, which is kind of a good thing compared to what I used to see is that more women are aware that they have it. So they're starting to look for it with their daughters. And, you know, but sometimes, you know, this is also part of what can normalize it because let's say every woman in this family or many of them had bad periods, if you will, you know, significant cramps, they're like, oh, welcome. That's just how it is in our family. Your, your periods are going to be just terrible, but that's not normal. There shouldn't be vomiting with menstrual pain. There shouldn't be period pain really at all. Very, very mild. Occasional pain is about the most I would accept at all. Um, And as I said, sometimes the pelvic pain is not always with the cycle. And endometriosis is kind of like a benign cancer. It's not cancerous, but it's little growths outside of the uterus. So by definition, it's outside of the uterus. And it can be anywhere. They found it on the knee, in the nose. The diaphragm is very common. It's commonly uh, growing on and around the bowel and intestines. So there can be painful sex. There can be infertility. Sometimes it's very silent and people don't know they have it unless they struggle with infertility, which is another one of those things that might be like, oh, silently in the history of this family, there was infertility in several aunts or things like that. Um, And then it also tends to present with vulvar pain, uh, especially pain with penetration during intercourse or just vulvodynia, which can be just pain with anything. It can be provoked or unprovoked, even just wearing certain pants can bother it, or it just can happen anytime the vulvar pain and bladder pain. So it can feel like you constantly have a UTI or um, you know, urgency, frequency, bladder irritation. And yet every time you go in for a test, it's like, oh, we we're not finding anything, um, that can overlay with endometriosis, or it can be its own thing. Um, painful bladder syndrome or interstitial cystitis. The good news is, is that all of these things can be improved in management and managed and the, the, the ability to do so is increasing all the time. So I don't want people to get discouraged, but it is a very, it can be a very debilitating condition. Yeah. And it's so wide ranging. I can see how it would be difficult to, you know, um, diagnose and and locate, especially if somebody's not a specialist with that, because there's a, a lot of overlapping symptoms there with different types of conditions or situations. And um, it's also something that 
I don't know, women probably aren't as bad with this as men are, but that they keep things to themselves about certain types of symptoms and problems and things that are either embarrassing or they don't want to talk about it, or they think it's normal because they hear everyone else complaining about the same things. And um, so it's also probably something that doesn't get treatment sought after as quickly as, um, or as often uh, as it probably should. Yeah. And there's an organization called Endo What. They produced a documentary film as well. And I'm involved in that organization, just donating money to start educating school nurses in middle school and high school, because ideally that's where we would catch this. Um, But as you said, you know, it can be embarrassing to talk about and your traditional gynecologist is by and large, just simply untrained to handle this. They literally don't know about it, learn about it really in school, which is amazing because it it occurs in one to nine, about 10% of every, every human with a uterus. Um, And we, they even see this one, a 9% rate in fetuses in female fetuses. So it's there at birth, um, but there are no easy diagnostic tools. There's no like blood work or imaging. If they can see it on imaging, great, and it exists, but often it's difficult to see on imaging. So the only way to truly diagnose endometriosis is with a skilled laparoscopic surgery. And there are just not that many surgeons who are really skilled at this. Um, it's again, it's increasing, uh, you know, in the last 25 years, but a lot of times women will have had several surgeon surgeries with either their traditional gynecologist, or they'll have had the wrong kind of surgery. So you absolutely want skilled excision surgery. You don't want ablation surgery and, you know, Ideally, you want that to be with someone who essentially their whole job is doing these kinds of excision surgeries because they have to bring in bowel specialists, you know, they have to know to look beyond the abdominal pelvic area into the diaphragm and other parts of the body, Um, you know, look for if it's impacting breathing. I mean, endometriosis can cause lung collapse if it's not assessed in, in that area you know, because there's so much bowel involvement and bladder involvement, they often need to go in with a team of, including a general surgeon. So it's something that has to be really carefully assessed. And the, we work with some really great surgeons. And when you do that first, you have kind of what we do for everything else. And when it comes to sports injuries, kind of back to my PT days is we give people a few months of sort of prehab, like let's lower the inflammation. Let's, you know, do some of the things that we can talk about in a minute prior to doing those surgeries so that they're easier. They're easy to recover from, you know, digestive function is better. Inflammation is better. Inflammatory, um, autoimmune and inflammatory markers are better. In fact, the surgery itself makes such a change in the autoimmune, um, expression that it increases fertility for at least a year or so post-op And in my experience, when you combine it with functional nutrition and skilled PT, that window can be extended relatively indefinitely. Wow. I didn't know that about the surgeries. And so that's, it's visible to the surgeons if they're trained on how to look for it and where to find it. And then it's removed. Yeah. And, uh, the body heals then theoretically without like new tissue that doesn't have 
Right. Yeah. You, it's removed just like you would remove a like cancer. Like a tumor or cancer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, now it can grow back and it can, they can miss smaller, mm. you know, it, there's lots of different presentations of endometriosis. Occasionally it's missed. Occasionally it grows back, but so much rarer with skilled excision surgeons. So, you know, again, 15, 20 years ago when I was doing this, I would very commonly in PTC patients who had had 16, 20 surgeries, you know, before, you know, before they'd come to me, or maybe they had come in between now, you know, I wouldn't suggest, I would suggest people are really careful about the first surgeon they choose. And then your expectation is no more than one to in a very severe case with some, you know, kind of complications, maybe three surgeries in a lifetime, but not 20. 20 surgeries. That's crazy. No. Um, okay. Um, so if it's present in fetus and in newborns and 9% and that percentage seems to carry like that, uh, it's kind of genetic related, but then I would guess the severity of it or the flares, does it come in flares versus remissions or is it more like overall severity? Like, are there things that like say somebody goes through like a, a trauma or a really stressful period of time or their sleep cycle gets disrupted or any one of those highly disruptive or a global pandemic happens with tons of stress or an infection, um, something like that. Does that seem to alter the severity or is it just hormone related or? No, I would say it's actually, it's definitely inflammatory related. And so because it's inflammatory related, both kind of the expression, it's more sort of how the symptoms express level of severity is tricky in endometriosis because someone could have stage one endo, which is sort of less severe by staging, like how extensive it's growing and have really severe symptoms. And someone can have stage four endo and have no symptoms. So symptom expression is highly variable, which is important because in some cases, surgery is unnecessary at all. It's not a life-threatening condition, but it's a significantly quality of life-threatening condition for many women. Um, but it's not always necessary to have surgery, except I do strongly recommend it sooner rather than later in women who have fertility goals, because it does help protect and, and prolong fertility. But, you know, let's say someone's, you know, comes to me, they're 38, they've already had their children or they don't intend to have children and they just, they haven't had surgery, but they've had a lot of symptoms. They've been maybe off and on pain management medications for years and years, and they just want to improve the symptoms, but they don't want to have surgery then there's a lot we can do kind of addressing the inflammatory and autoimmune health in general to reduce the symptom expression. And absolutely, you know, actually the most important thing we monitor now. So I used to start people with kind of a relatively strict elimination diet. It's the gold standard and kind of lowering inflammation. However, in this population, there are a lot of eating disorders because people are so afraid to eat because everything hurts to eat. So really from the beginning, we encourage, now we have people take away some of the most inflammatory foods, sugar, soy, gluten, and dairy. Basically that's it. Less meats, but still animal protein is absolutely fine. There's a little bit of data showing that beef can be problematic, but I haven't seen that in grass-fed beef 
Um, so we reduce the most common inflammatory triggers um, or eliminate them for a period of time, at least usually three weeks to about 12 weeks, and then kind of depends on when they have the surgery. And then what we're focused on is adding anti-inflammatory foods. But the thing we've started tracking about a year and a half ago is we sent every single one of our clients a Garmin fitness tracker, and we've started tracking HRV. And to me, that is a better Which is heart metric. rate variability yes. for people that don't know the abbreviation. Yeah, sorry, heart rate variability, no which is a sort of objective measure of stress. Mm-hmm. And that has been the most important metric in terms of helping people improve their symptoms and, and even fertility and you know hormonal regulation and everything else, because that's the root of everything. So if, you know, stress could come from your nutrition, it could come from living in a global pandemic. It could come from, you know, we had many girls in who went back to college in our practice, January of 2021, I guess. Yeah. Who got COVID. And so that was another layer of challenge, you know, trying to help support that recovery. Cause many of them, you know, endometriosis and vulvodynia are, at least somewhat autoimmune conditions. And so you layer a pretty severe infection on top of that, that can be challenging. Um, So anything that stresses the body, but certainly, you know, mental health things as much as physical health things, stress, the best thing about HRV tracking, and we also track sleep on those devices, is the device itself starts to help women, you know, we combine it with a lot of health coaching, but the device itself also helps women set better boundaries and just be like, Oh, you know, in Garmin, they measure HRV through an algorithm. So it's expressed as a thing called body battery. And it's like, Oh, my body battery is only 20. I I need to say no to. It's like real-time feedback as to how your system is doing. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I've never and, used the Garmin one, but there's there's a lot of devices out there. There's the Aura Ring, the Heart Math. There's different ones that maybe don't have like the real time feedback. That that one sounds like you can see at any time. Yeah, that's why we chose it. I tested a number of things for for that particular practice. I actually use the Aura Ring myself, and and I like it. And I've used the Garmin too. But the reason we chose the Garmin for this program, number one, it just seems to fit everybody, which not every device does. Yeah. But two, it's that during the day feedback. And what a lot of women benefit from is seeing in real time, you know, if they look, I mean, it's expressed on the watch, you can choose to look at it or not, but they, the, the downside is it's a little bit of a fitness pushing device versus the aura ring, which is more of a recovery focused device. But what it does show is how stressed the system is in the moment. And those daytime stressors, once as we start modifying those, sleep gets better. It's easier to eat healthier. People's energy is better. You know, everything kind of spirals from that. And it has to do with so many things, you know, vagus nerve toning and um, emotional stressors and just the stress of living with a chronic illness for, you know, 12 years before you were even diagnosed is sometimes the most important thing is we're addressing that we're a safe space for someone to come 
And we're going to be patient with their recovery for however long it takes. And then they have this kind of reminder of like, oh, I really, it's today's not a day I should push it. How am I going to focus on some breath work, spending more time outside, eating less sugar, eating more vegetables, eating more herbs and spices, which are very anti-inflammatory. I'd like to briefly interrupt this conversation to let everyone know that we've got a free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit that's available for you right now over at www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations if you'd like a little help organizing and implementing all your learning from this podcast. A gift from our team over at Rebel Health Tribe, producers of this show. And now back to your episode. Boundaries is such a huge issue. We talk about autoimmunity being about the, you know, the lining of the small intestine of the gut, right? Leaky gut syndrome, same thing with bladder pain. It's kind of leaky bladder, chronic systemic musculoskeletal pain can sometimes be about leaky brain, but on a day-to-day practical level for patients, a lot of times it's about leaky emotional barriers, which is a little harder to explain But if you have a sort of a fitness tracker that's like, hey, every time you talk to that person, there's a big orange spike, then we start to understand how emotional boundaries are so key to physical healing. And that's been a really valuable tool for the practice in the last couple of years. I think that would benefit anybody with any chronic condition or anybody looking to optimize their health in any sort of way. I think anything that brings education around the fact that like stress is stress to your system and we know like in our culture there seems to be some that are more accepted or understood like you know oh i just ate a whole box of oreo cookies that's probably pretty stressful on my system or people will joke about like i just ate three pieces of cake or i did this thing i did this thing and like some of the food things that we tend to like guilt or shame ourselves around like people know that that's stressful on their system. They know probably now at this point that like staying up till two in the morning and shorting their sleep is, is stressful to their system. But you mentioned like, Oh, every time I talk to that person, there's a a spike. And when that person lives in your house or is your partner or your spouse or, you know, that it can, and, or your boss or your coworker or a teacher or somebody you see at school or somebody that you're consistently running into or around. Um, I saw that a lot when I used to work with people with pretty complex chronic conditions was that uh, they'd be doing this, the diet and they'd be like, I'm doing everything to the T and I'm taking these supplements. And then they would start talking to me about, you know, issues in their marriage or at their job or, you know, with their sister who doesn't talk to them or, you know, whatever the thing is. And I would started to put two and two together that a lot of times with the people that are the needle doesn't move. um, That's an area that is often overlooked, even in integrative medicine and in functional medicine, we want everything to fit the protocol. Like, 
do this diet and take these supplements and you're going to be awesome. And I think having a device like that and, and being educated in that way as a patient to say like, Hey, pay attention to this. Like, cause you know, you know who those people are. Anybody who's listening to that, like there's social situations and individual people that right now, as we're talking about this, they're popping into your head and there's probably a little bit of like a, uh, Oh, I don't know if I want to see that uh, kind of thing, but I think that it's so huge and essential and valuable for people with, you know, obviously endometriosis, but like any condition that's flared with inflammation or stress, which is pretty much every chronic condition that exists. um, Yeah. I think that's a really forward way uh, to be working with people and to, to give them that out too, because I think it kind of removes some of the guilt that people tend to feel like there's these superhero do everything people out there. No offense if you're one of those people. Um, but <laughs> I'll just raise my hand over here. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> and, and yeah. And what you've been through the last year and a half too, like uh, she's a long hauler COVID. And so that's, that's what I mean with that is like learning to um, that it's okay. Like that it gives you a, a validation or an excuse or a, a hall pass to like not do the thing that's probably the thing that's too much for your plate right now. Where I think a lot of people in our culture struggle with with doing that. And for you sure. have this intuitive like, oh, I don't really feel up to that. But with the actual number right in front of you or a device being like, ah, hey, look at this. Like, I think it's a huge thing. It's been so helpful because it's it you know, as you said, generally people know what these issues are. I used to say this all the time when I was teaching, like, if you just sit here and think about what's the thing that I'm like carrying in a backpack all the time, you know what it is. Um, And in, in endometriosis, it can be some pretty big things. Any chronic pelvic pain, it can be your sex life. It can be with your partner, which is going to influence your whole relationship. It can be your, fertility, uh, which can influence many things about your life. And it can also just be chronic pain that you've been managing and gaslighting. And and some of the medications that are used in endometriosis are pretty harsh and less and less, you know, they're not that effective. Um, a lot of times girls are just given birth control or some kind of hormonal suppression when they're young and just like, Oh, that'll cure it, which is not going to cure it at all. It'll just suppress it for a while. And, and, you know, I was talking with one of my patients recently and she's like, you know, Oh yes. I refer to the Lupron years. Like Lupron is a very extreme medication that the, the current version of which exists called Orlissa that really suppresses estrogen. So the challenge with that is that endometriosis lesions also create their own hormones. And it's not just an estrogen dominant driven disease. That's what we used to think that just suppressed the estrogen, but endometriosis lesions can, can uh, upregulate estrogen receptors, progesterone receptors. So sometimes people are taking naturopathic like progesterone cream that may or may not help, you know, it may actually make things worse. So, and we can't know any of that. There's no good testing for it. So we can't know unless someone has that lesion removed and then histology is done. And the research that's all been done on that shows that the same woman could have multiple kinds of lesions. So there's not like a clear hormone suppression or hormone replacement or even natural hormone suppression or replacement strategy. So you really have to look at the overall inflammatory environment 
and digestive function. I think that's another thing that really can't be overlooked, which all of this starts in the brain, right? So heart rate variability is that sort of unconscious passive way to track it. And as you said, it's so valuable because one of my clients just recently, she, you know, like the watch broke for a couple of weeks and, you know, took a little time to get a new one. And it was just like that idea of the hall pass, as you're saying is so true because it's like, she knew when she was overdoing it. It's not like she didn't know, but like she had no excuse in her own mind. It's almost like somebody's watching now. Yes. And so (laughs) that's, and, and over time, like there is some research on doing coaching with uh, digital apps and devices like this. And they, it actually works even better than doing in-person coaching, which is really kind of interesting to have this combination, but which makes sense if you figure the watch is sort of following your client around all the time, you know, there's, it's like having a little, little (laughs) miniature you on their shoulder. That's right. So there's, there's pros and cons to the nudges of technology, but that's one potential benefit. But just the idea that, you know, if you don't have that external feedback initially, at least for a while, and, and, you know, people need that for at least six to 12 months, eventually people don't need the watch. They start to get stronger in their boundaries. And that gets easier too. you know, you talk a lot about, and others talk a lot about mind body medicine, which I think is really important, but I have always approached things, you know, coming from a physical therapy background, I'm kind of like, you know, if you look at all the different sides and everything. I'm always one of the like earth grounded kinds of things. Right. And I know there are people that kind of approach life from a more spiritual perspective and some people that from more of kind of a physical perspective. And so that's my just natural set point. And I've often find that if you help people physically start feeling a bit more resilient, doing the mental health work is easier it's easier to say no when you're not like exhausted and worried about your relationship. When you have more kind of like less vulnerability, I guess, more stability in your own self, then you can have hard marriage conversations. That's very hard to do when you feel vulnerable in that relationship, even if that's the core driver, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that that goes both ways too. Like one becomes easier with the other and vice versa. So yes, I I agree. And, And so I think for each person that's different, but I think some of the physical things we can do are really, you know, have that hall pass and, and that's kind of a mental health thing too. Um, one of my daughters, when she went back to school post pandemic, the younger one, imagine like literally being home with your parents all day for a year and a half, and kind of going to school, but not really. And then going to middle school. Like it was the worst case scenario. Never <laughs> been there, never even been in the in the building. You know, her first couple of weeks in middle school were a little rough. And the counselor, though, I, I called her because I was like, look, I've done all the things, you know, I've given her CBD and melatonin and we're meditating. I'm like, I don't really know how to deal with this. Uh, you know, I'm not a mental health therapist and, and, and certainly not pediatric. Uh, you know, I work with teenagers only for this one thing <laughs> and not for everything. And the, the thing they gave her that helped her the most is a, like a pass to go see them anytime she needed to. She almost never uses it. Yeah, but it's there. It's there. Yeah. It's there. And that this is kind of the same thing. Like you've got a per, you've got a coach on your team 
that's helping you understand the surgery, figure out the questions to ask your physical therapist, you know, not stress when you ate a piece of birthday cake and your pain flared. Like sometimes we just need a person or a team or a group of people or, you know, the whole system to help support the recovery. Cause you know, you mentioned that I have long COVID. One of the things I've most learned from that is that you really, as much as you might understand about the condition, it's very hard to heal anything yourself. And it has to be done with like a patient supportive hall pass. You have to, cause you don't always know, like, is this getting worse? Is it flaring it? You know, where, when I say to my patients, okay, your goal is to keep your stress, stress score below 30. And we notice that every day when you go into the office, it's 40. How can we change that? What are some of the things we can do? It's a much more objective measure because symptoms, and, and again, as you know, from some of your work in mental health, symptoms are not always reliable. And having something that's a little bit more objective that you can look at moment to moment gives you much clearer boundaries. And it's helped people in their marriages, in their work life balance. And I, that's really the key to healing because in endometriosis, they, they did a study that was published about two years ago that showed that 74% of women with endometriosis feel like the disease has just taken them off their career path. Cause it's the most problematic roughly ages, like late teens to early, late twenties. So that 10 years, and that's when you're trying to go to law school and start your first job. And like, when you can't show up for work consistently, it's very frustrating. And people literally kind of drop off the trajectory of their whole lives from it. But if you can start building, um, you know, boundaries, if you will, barriers around it, and you have a way to communicate it with either your supervisor or your teachers or your spouse or your parents, it becomes more manageable and everyone can help you manage it because then, you know, then the parents of my 15 year old girls are like, okay, now I can help advocate more for her because it's really clear what's going on. Pulls more people onto the team. Yeah. Or feeling like alone and isolated with something is going to cause more stress and more inflammation too. So, wow, uh, this was a different direction than I expected this conversation to go, and it was great. And uh, I know you primarily as a teacher of practitioners. You've mentioned working with patients some, which you still do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, before we go, we're going to have a couple links down below in the show notes for them, and one link is more for patients and laypersons to learn. And one link is more for practitioners and courses. You have a ton of amazing trainings and courses you've put together for practitioners who want to specialize in these things and bring themselves up to date and, and up to speed. So can you tell us just a little bit of what would be found in both locations? Yeah. So for anyone struggling with this yourself, or if your daughter or family member, you think you might have this, or you just need more information, I would love to give you a free copy of my book. Just go to outsmartendo.com and that kind of maps out our 
program at least, um, and you can start following it yourself. And that's also sort of the path to if you want to come work with us as a client. Um, I'm as a as I'm recovering, I'm, you know, it's we're slowly ramping that back up, but we're a little bit booked in the moment. Uh, which is one of the reasons why, and and that's not, you know, I haven't been sick this whole time. That's more recent. But the other reason that I've started training practitioners is there are 176 million people worldwide with this. I can only see so many of them. So uh, for our practitioners, we have an endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain certificate training program. We have coaching certification programs that are global third-party approved and oversight. Most of them have continuing education credits with many different subspecialties. We have physicians, PTs, health coaches, nutritionists, occupational therapists, nurses, PAs, on and on. And that can all be found in our professional course catalog that you'll have the link to there. It just recently launched. So congratulations on that. I know Thank you. how challenging it can be to put that together. And we'll be sending out information on that probably even before this airs, or maybe we'll do it around the time this airs and we'll, we'll get it all in one spot. But so if you're looking Thanks. for, you know, yourself as a patient or someone, a loved one, download a free copy of her book at, uh, we'll make it really clear which link is link, which link is which. And then if you're a practitioner that works with women with endometriosis and pelvic pain and, and hormone specific issues with women, the, the trainings there will help bring you up to speed and, and help you. Cause I agree, like training practitioners is really the way to reach the most people you can't work with 179 million or however many you just named. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the training programs are there are great. And we'll have links over there to that too, for those who want to learn to bring this type of skill and knowledge and experience into their own practice. So thank you yeah. so much for everything you shared and for all the courses you've created and the book and the trainings and everything you're doing to help kind of shine a light on something that a lot of women have been dealing with in the dark for a long time, I think. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having awesome. me here. And that wraps up another episode of the Natural Evolution Podcast. Thanks for listening. And please check out the links in the show notes below to learn more about our guests and grab your free downloadable Foundations of Wellness Starter Kit, which will help you implement what you're learning here and make powerful shifts in your health and your life right away. Just go to www.rebelhealthtribe.com backslash foundations and you can be started in only a few minutes. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating, review, or subscribe to stay in the loop with future releases.